this element of grief that may come up, right? Because if that's who you are, that's who you've always been, and you're changing into this next other version of you, there's this delta, right? There's this gap between who you were and who you want to be. Well, we're excited today to have Dr. Cindy Tsai on our podcast, um, board certified physician and uh, amazing experience, amazing stories. So I'm going to jump straight in and ask you, Cindy, why medicine? Thank you so much for having me. So for me, ever since I was young, medicine was around me. My dad was a surgeon. And so I grew up with medicine and I saw how rewarding it was for him to be saving lives and operating on people. And so growing up, I was very health conscious and just really wanted to go down that path to help people. And so I worked really hard doing all the right things, checked off all the boxes, all the top schools, did all the research and um, learned so much. But along the way, I got sick myself. And I talked about that in my TEDx talk when I woke up one day not being able to see. And that was a total wake up call for me because I had been so health conscious, doing all the right things, but yet I still got sick. And so that experience really helped me pause to reflect and reevaluate and reassess what does health and well-being really mean and look like. And um, I think it's so much more than just medicine, but also so many other aspects in our lives that we need to consider and bring in. Absolutely. And you said you touched on that, that you said you were doing all the right things, but you still got sick. What do you think it was that maybe you weren't doing right if it was in any way your lifestyle that was contributing to it? Definitely. So at the time, so what happened was I, um, it took a while to get the actual diagnosis. And so that in and of itself was very stressful when you're seen as a medical mystery, right. To, um, doctors and, and, uh, when you're, you just feel so helpless and frustrated. Um, but what ended up happening was I was diagnosed with a rare autoimmune condition impacting my eyes that could have led to full blindness. And so looking at autoimmune conditions, a lot of times, so it's, it's because there's significant inflammation in your body. And I had to really look at the causes of inflammation. There's diet, lifestyle, but also stress. That was a big part of it for me. And at the time when this happened, I was in residency training, working long hours, working nights. And then during the day, instead of sleeping and resting, I was still raising my hand, volunteering, doing research, being this overachiever, right? And just never feel like I was doing enough. And I think it really all caught up with me um, at this point. And I was really forced to stop and pause and reassess, um, you know, what really, what kind of life I wanted to lead and live and, and move forward. And do you think that's typical for a young doctor that, you know, they are sort of overachievers and it is part and parcel of the training and early stages of the career? Yeah, I would say so. And I think it's not just in medicine. I think there's a lot of very high achieving type A individuals in all industries, right? Um, and so I think, and I think our culture, the American Western culture also oftentimes rewards this kind of productivity and busyness. And unfortunately, I think we lose sight of that um, balance, so to speak. And so we end up just pushing ourselves constantly. You know, it's almost like zero or like 100 miles an hour. And that's why I think there's just so much burnout and exhaustion and all of that that we see in our modern day today. Yeah, there's actually one thing, because I recently read your book um, with the title So Much Better. And what was really interesting for me is that you were explaining your one of four girls, the youngest of four girls. And you were also saying that um, 
your parents, who I think were a little bit older when they had to do with a big age gap. And I can, I can relate to that because my older sister is 18 years older, my other one 13. So I was the last with a big age gap as the youngest. And that you, you were saying that that put a bit of pressure on you to kind of um, almost defend your place in the family, just saying, oh, I wasn't a mistake. I'm not like the late latecomer. Um, and that that made you want to achieve and prove yourself. And I thought that was a really interesting aspect because I think these things that we sometimes don't really consciously understand that drive us and make us make these decisions. And I would be really curious to hear a little bit more about that, what that experience was. It was conscious or unconscious? Yeah, definitely. So for me, um, there is a big age gap. My oldest sister um, is like 16, 17 years older than me. And um, so growing up, I, I really felt like I was an only child in some ways. Um, and also for my parents, they were hope, you know, they had three daughters, they were hoping for a son. <laughs> and so I think, you know, I grew up in Taiwan, there's, you know, that that's just the reality of Chinese culture and tradition, you know, for many, many years. Um, and so I think a lot of this was subconscious in terms of just feeling like, okay, I'm a girl and, um, you know, I, I need to prove myself like that. I can be just as good, if not better than if I were a boy. And I think a lot of that was subconscious and, um, it drove a lot of my tendencies, perfectionism, people pleasing, all of that, which all of course leads to stress, right. In terms of how I show up in life. And I think it wasn't until, um, just, you know, in five, 10 years, when I really started to dive deep into my own healing and growth and progression that I was really able to look within and identify a lot of these patterns and habits and to be able to bring compassion and forgiveness and acceptance and, and love to really be able to um, embrace those parts and to move forward. So how are your eyes now? They seem to be working from what I could see. Yes, yes. So I'm very grateful because, um, I mean, it took a few years of, of a lot of intense uh, treatments and things like that. I was on immunosuppressants, steroids, all the things. Um, but I also dove deep and brought in like integrative functional medicine, energy healing, complementary alternative modalities, acupuncture, mindfulness coaching, like all the things. And thankfully was able to heal my eyes after, you know, this like two, three year period. And so I, I truly believe that our bodies are capable of healing and that we really need to provide the support, the environment, you know, all of it to, to really support it through this process. Are you still needing to take medication now? Have you sort of managed it through more of your kind of Eastern philosophies around self-healing? So, yeah, no, I don't take medication for, for my eyes. Yeah, I was able to, to heal. Yeah, so that was Amazing. great. Yeah, I touched on when when I watched your TEDx and then we had that conversation ourselves, how I had a, not as similar, but I had an eye issue where I had detached retinas and my right eye hemorrhaged and it was the most scary time of my life and went through multiple surgeries and again was on steroid medication, all kinds of things. But I very quickly wanted to get off them and they were saying, well, you're going to be on this for the rest of your life. And I was thinking, well, that doesn't seem right. That just seems like a, a blanket statement. So I worked hard to do things like managing my diet and my sleep and my rest to help anything that I could to find a way to get off the medication. And I ultimately convinced them to take me off and they weaned me off the steroids and other things. And, you know, after probably two years of that, I got off all the medication and luckily I've been off them and all the eye pressures and everything are perfect. So I think sometimes what we see is there's just a, you know, tick in a box and cover that with that blanket and take this tablet or this magic pill and it will all be okay, but we don't know what it's doing to our bodies long-term. 
I totally agree. Um, I think a lot of times um, it's not that I'm against medications. I think absolutely there's a time and place. If you have something acute, you know, like definitely you know, take the medications, stabilize. Um, but I think a lot of times what people don't necessarily realize or think about is that everything, you know, the medications have a list of side effects. And sometimes what happens, ends up happening is we trade one thing for another, right? There's a medication that helps with blood pressure. And for a lot of people, it can cause leg swelling, but then, you know, you kind of weigh, right? The risks benefit, whatever, and you see what makes sense. Um, but I think I'm definitely always a proponent of bringing in healthy lifestyle patterns and, and habits, right? If you're eating, if it means eating less salt and then you don't have to be on blood pressure medicine, that to me makes a lot of sense. <laughs> so, um, yeah, definitely. I think it's important to, to take that holistic approach. I mean, what I find really fascinating is like how you discovered through your own health journey, really your purpose, how you're explaining it as well. It's like, where are you taking the, the knowledge that you have from the Western medicine and then combine it with Eastern philosophies. And I think that's, and then develop like your own system within that. And I find that really fascinating. What would you say in the Western medicine when you just explored that or were in that field? What did you feel was the biggest stumbling blocks? Because we always hear about the American health system being broken. And I'm just always really trying to understand what does that exactly mean? Um, and what from your point of view with the Eastern philosophies in mind could be done better to our system? Yeah, well, I think this is a, a big question. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I think for me, from my perspective, um, having practiced as a primary care physician for years and, and being, you know, understanding the healthcare system from that perspective, I think a lot of times um, Western medicine is very good with acute care, right? If you break your bone, you need surgery, things like that. It's, it's very good for that. Um, I think the challenges come with chronic conditions, chronic disease, where um, a lot of times the tendency is to go straight to the pill, the medication, and then you just put somebody on it and expecting like that's the rest of their lives. And I think that can be a disservice sometimes when we're not really looking at the whole picture, which is what I appreciate about complementary alternative Eastern modalities, when you're really looking at not just physical health, but mental, emotional health, spiritual health, community relationship, like really the whole picture and bringing those aspects into your healing and well-being. And so I think that um, a lot of times the limitation I see is really surrounding like acute versus chronic disease and how they approach it. I find that sometimes, especially with um, mental health conditions, people may be put on a medication, right? Because they've had something traumatic happen and it's, it's helpful to be on a medication to just stabilize your mood so that you can get sleep, so that you can function and all of those things. But after a while, right, let's say you're on it for a year or two years, um, I think sometimes um People forget to reevaluate and they stay on the medications when maybe they don't necessarily need to be on that dose or whatever and bringing in other important lifestyle changes, practices, learning different techniques, coaching, all of these stress management tools that we have um, can be so helpful so that they actually don't no longer need to be on medication treatment or things like that. And in your experience, when you encourage people to change a lifestyle or adopt a new habit or try new things, how, how often are people embracing that? How many people are able to stick to it? Because I can imagine for a lot of people, and it's been true for myself, is that a lot of those things take effort. And it means, you know, changing a lifestyle, which for some people, taking out certain lifestyle habits is almost part of their personality. So it's a major shift. And I'm just wondering how you experience people able to make those significant changes for the better. Yeah, I would say it's variable, being honest, right? 
<laughs> it yeah. just depends. Um, I think it depends on the individual. It depends on what's actually going on. Um, you know, how motivated they are. Right. Um, and also the, the, uh, the changes that, that are, that we're considering. Um, I think a big part of something you touched on Ben is, um, it's their identity, right? Yeah. If you were raised in a family where it's normal to, um, have dessert every single day, right. And then you're on the verge of diabetes and whatever, all these things, and you really need to cut out some of that, um, you know, excess food, there's going to be this, um, this, I think, um, just sometimes this like struggle for the individual of like, yeah, am I really ready to do this? Where And then also thinking about the rest of their family and the rest of their community, right? It's like, am I going to be that lone person? Am I going to be the one who like stands out, who like declines the dessert, who does not drink, who doesn't have coffee, you know, and like, are people going to look at me like I'm crazy? And then, you know, all of that. So a hundred percent, that's a big part of this. And so I think it really um, is oftentimes very individual in terms of the level of commitment and, and really what drives them. Right. And so I think it's also very important to make sure you have the right support and community around you when we're talking about making these lifestyle changes. And I I know that for example, with partners, you know, if one person really wants to lose weight, but the other person is not on board, it's really challenging right? You're, you see each other all the time. You live together. And then if one person's like still going to go eat donuts and French fries, and then the other person's like going paleo and like, you know, like that's going to be really hard for for your day to day for your relationship. Um, so I think it, it, um, I, I see it all across the board. Of course, I think, um, I think the most, the, the times when it's most successful is of course, really helping the individuals find their why their purpose so yeah, that we yeah. really get deep into um, that that motivation, right? Because it, the, it's so much better when it's um, internally driven as opposed to something external. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned the why, because it took me until recently to really understand that to make those big lifestyle changes, you've got to have a purpose or a draw that's way bigger than sort of that, I, oh, I should lose a bit of weight or I should give up sugar for a while or alcohol or coffee or whatever it may be. And it's it's really a lifestyle change for the long term. This is it. This is my new identity. This is who I'm going to be. And it's what is that pull towards that outweighs those short term fixes that you might be getting junk highs from, whether it's, you know, the sugar, the alcohol, the Netflix, whatever it is. And it, it really resonated with me. It took a while to go in and I was like, no, I totally get this now. And for me, I've been able to make some fundamental changes. And the biggest one for me over the last sort of four or five months is stopping drinking alcohol. And coming from the UK, that was kind of part of my identity is just who I was. It's how I socialized. And I'm not saying it's going to be forever, but it's been a fundamental change for me. And it's because I've developed this purpose and this this much bigger picture that goes way beyond myself. It's about, you know, our relationship, our business, the community we're trying to build around wellness, design and architecture. So that outweighs any short-term gratification that I might get from having a drink one evening. And um, yeah, it's it's all about the why I'm, I'm on board with that. And I think something to touch on as you're sharing that, which thank you for, for being open about that, is... Um, I think one one thing to keep in mind and to consider as you're navigating these changes is um, that this element of grief that may come up, right? Because if that's who you are, that's who you've always been, and you're changing into this next other version of you, there's this delta, right? There's this gap between who you were and who you want to be. And then I think sometimes um, we have to actually just acknowledge that and give it some space um, 
so that it doesn't um, kind of become this like um, like stumbling block essentially, right? Because a lot of times I find that we change things. For example, I mean, thinking about the new year and then people set all the new year's resolutions to go to the gym, right? <laughs> like go sign up for the gym in January. And then by like the third week, like nobody's there. <laughs> and so, <Yeah. laughs> so part of it is just, you know, reconciling that difference and, and, um, and really doing some of that, um, like deeper reflection and work to understand that, why that purpose and being okay with it. Yeah. I think that's really interesting because I haven't really thought about that grief part because you're letting go of something that belongs to you because you always feel like I'm doing something better for myself and there's a better version there. But to, like you're saying, to also acknowledge that it might not feel a comfortable and also that there is a losing some part of your old. You want to shed your old identity, but it's that feeling of you losing something. So I think that's a really interesting aspect. And like you're saying, reflecting on it, which kind of makes me feel everything we spoke about, really a lot of that basis is mindfulness, which I know you're a big opponent of and explain a lot of good methods in the book. Um, because I think without that pause, without that reflection, it's very hard in our fast-paced world even to think about those things and to have a moment to be able to to react in a different way or act in a different way. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think mind mindfulness practice has really helped me so much personally and I see it in all areas of life you know not just uh, personal but also professional um, I, a lot of times with professional interactions and communication like emotional intelligence is really important and a big part of that is when you're mindful when you're present you're able to better regulate your emotions you're able to better read the room you know, who you're talking to and it actually, and it really helps with communication and, and everything overall. So I think, um, it's a lot of times easier said than done to really be present. And, um, I think the other key component of mindfulness is, um, it's not just paying attention and being, in, you know, in the present moment. It's also the piece about being in non-judgment and being an observer and I think as humans, we all judge. It's our natural tendency. <laughs> and um, so it's really important just to just to even be aware, right? Anytime something happens, if you say the moment we say it's good or bad, that's us putting our filter and judgment on something, right? So being able to even just pause and take a breath and step back and just even... Um, be able to verbalize like what actually happened versus putting our own judgment that in and of itself is definitely a practice also. I wonder for some people when they hear that or they go into this world of mindfulness that they may not be, you know, that familiar with when you say sort of not putting a judgment on it, I wonder if some people would feel like they suddenly become passive in their lives and now they're just this kind of, floating device through life that doesn't really not allowed an opinion so how would you sort of balance that that it's not about you know not having an opinion about things or not becoming this yeah passive person yeah that's a great question i think sometimes um that to me um i think of more as being in resignation and giving up whereas i see mindfulness as actually a very active process where you're really um, paying attention. So for example, you can be mindful doing anything and everything. It's not just meditation, which I know a lot of times people associate it with. Um, but you can be mindful, like doing the dishes when you're taking out the trash and what it is, I see mindfulness is just a way to help you ground into the moment. And a really great way is to connect to the sensations that you're experiencing in your body. Right. So if you're doing the dishes, take a moment and feel like the temperature of the water, the weight of the dishes, like how it feels, all of those things. That's, you know, the practice of being mindful and present. Whereas I think sometimes, um, you know, it's 
the moment you're like, okay, well, I don't care. Like that's also, that's essentially more of that. Um, I would say resignation, right. And you're not really, um, I think being curious about what's actually going on. So I would say that's probably, there's a more active, um, um, component to mindfulness that I see. And how does that benefit? How does somebody doing the dishes, being sort of mindful and feeling and understanding themselves, how is that sort of practical in the in the real world? Yeah. Well, I think a lot of times we have so much going on in our lives that we're, we're not present. And, for, and basically we're living in our heads. So we're probably thinking about the past, like what should have been said, what should have been done, you know, all the things we didn't do. <laughs> or we're worrying about the future. It's like, okay, what is coming up? What do I have to keep, you know, go to the grocery, do whatever, all of these things. And so when we're in the past or the future, we're no longer present in the now. But if you really think about it, where do we actually have control? It's right now in the moment, right? But a lot of times our tendency is to jump in the past or the future. And then what happens is it actually creates this um, vicious cycle in a way because we like think about all the things you didn't do. It causes stress, more anxiety. And it's like, you know, ongoing loop and rumination. And that creates more stress in and of itself and you're not present. And so even a simple practice like doing the dishes taking a mindful breath. All that is, is to help you bring your brain into the present moment to refocus, right? Because the moment you're like, actually, for example, feeling the cushion on your back, right? How the shoes, like how the ground, um, you know, feeling your toes and all of these things, you're in that present moment, and it takes you out of that ruminating loop and all of that stress cycle. That actually reminds me of something I was reading in your book about how the brain works. And I always find that really fascinating. Um, do you want to give us a little bit of insight of how we can work the brain in our, to our benefit? Yeah. So are you talking about in terms of just understanding the mind-body connection? Yeah, well, mind-body connection. And then you were also saying when we focus on something negative, then the brain attracts more of the evidence of that that negative is real versus if we focus on the positive. So I think there's so many different tricks to use our brains for the better and not just give in where the brain wants to go. And I thought yeah, this, there were different um, scenarios that you were explaining that, but I think that was really interesting. Yeah, for sure. Well, so I think first off is recognizing the mind and the body are not separate and that it's very much connected. And so I simplify it into basically, um, we are constantly receiving, um, signals right into our brains and like input basically. And input is anything that we can perceive from our senses, what we see, hear, feel, anything, but also our thoughts and what's in our imagination. And so what happens is that our brain receives that and interprets it as a potential stress signal. And then that stress signal activates the sympathetic nervous system in our bodies, which is essentially what drives the fight or flight response, as I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with. And so the fight or flight system, because it's connected to all of our organs, um, you know, our cells and, and all the things, what happens is our body um, basically tenses up in response because it's preparing the body to either fight or to flight. So for example, your heart beats faster, your muscles tense up, you know, you probably get sweaty, you know, all your breath gets lighter, uh, more shallow, things like that. And then what ends up happening is it outputs to the body with these um, physical changes, right? And sensations. And so that's essentially that mind-body connection of, of, you know, how it's all connected. And so for example, a lot of times if you're, nervous about something 
like maybe before you have to do some public speaking and then you might feel anxious or nauseous. That's essentially another example of this mind-body connection, right? Where in your mind, you're thinking, okay, I'm really scared about like being on stage. And then that triggers that stress signal, the sympathetic, and then it impacts your all of your organ systems, including your digestive system, leading to feelings of nausea, discomfort, things like that. So just really highlighting that it's all connected, right? The mind and the body. And uh, what's really interesting is that in our brains, I mean, there's so many, so many specific like checkpoints and things like that. But um, basically there's a filter system. And so I think about it as, you know, if you are used to maybe worrying about things, essentially it's almost like putting on rose colored glasses, but with that filter on. And so everything comes through that lens. And so it basically feeds into the cycle and this vicious cycle of, you know, everything goes through that filter of something worrisome, something bad is going to happen. And then it just feeds into itself. And then it's really, it's really, um, I say like a muscle, right. Versus if you switch out that, um, switch out that lens or something that's, you know, if you're able to be in a state of gratitude, then, you know, you come, you're able to perceive things through that lens. Even when things are not working, you can find the little pieces that you're grateful for, the learnings, the experiences, whatever it is. And then that essentially is a positive feedback loop. Um, and so it's, that's why I think the mindset piece is so important in our overall well-being, right? We have to be able to recognize what our tendencies are, where our mind is going, and be able to get ourselves out of that, right? So we don't get stuck in that loop. Yeah, thanks for explaining that. That Because um, the, the mind is just so interesting to me, you know, how we can use it for or against us. Yeah, it's uh, it's fascinating. So is it possible to rewire your brain then, you know, change the sort of signals that we give ourselves over time? Definitely. There's a term called neuroplasticity, which basically is this idea that uh, the brain is always um, growing and changing and evolving. And so it's always making new connections, the nerve cells in the brain. And so um, I think that's why um, a lot of times I think decades ago, People thought, you know, up to a certain age, that's it, right? You can't, you can't change. This is what you have. Um, but thankfully, there's so much research just talking about how our brains and just our bodies are constantly in flux and evolving. And so when we're able to really leverage that and be able to feed in you know, good information, support it, you know, um, with good nutrients, environment, whatever it is, we are able to change and grow and, and learn new things and, and, you know, evolve for the better. Yeah, I completely agree just speaking sort of from my own experience. I'd say over the last two years, there were a lot of coaching and just really having a different outlook and changing my mindset about a lot of things. And it takes practice because, it's not a sort of one and done like, oh, think about this while this happens and you'll sort of master it forever. It definitely takes practice and it, it builds up over time. But yeah, choosing how we react to things and yeah, depending on what lens you look at something through, if you look it through the opposite lens and ideally a more positive one, over time it sort of just, yeah, starts to shift your perception of things and how you relate to different things and how your outlook and you start to have more of this say compelling future and things are used to think were negative or actually positives or things are used to think had a negative effect on some part of your life you can actually use as a positive because it got you to where you are so it's really yeah it's it's fascinating so I sort of I asked you that question sort of knowing the answer, I think, because from my own experience, I feel like I've I've made some of those changes myself. I just want to know how, why it works. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's great. I mean, like, I think that's why, um, you know, it's so important to recognize the growth mindset versus the fixed mindset, right? And, right. you know, having that growth mindset really helps somebody be more open 
to different ideas and, and really tap into that curiosity that I mentioned, right? That's so important um, to be able to uh, change and, and evolve and, and get better. Mm -hmm. That actually, actually makes me think about um, when I was reading about the method that you really developed through your own health journey and all the tools you are using. You were talking about there's like three aspects that I remember, which is calm, confident and curious. And under each of these sections, you have um, ideas of what to do to get to those stages. And what was interesting, the, the last one about curiosity, where you're talking about really connecting with your inner child, your inner creativity, you don't have to be an artist to be creative. We all have that creative spark in us. But what was interesting to me is that you were saying that we need to feel, our brains need to feel safe and not be in a situation of stress to actually be creative. And I thought that was a really interesting aspect to remind myself as designers and architects is do we need these downtimes, these moments of nothing. Um, so I'm kind of curious how you discovered that that's such an important part. Yeah, definitely. I think um, so basically looking at calm, confidence, curiosity, how I ended up, um, I think how it connects is calm is really about um regulating the nervous system and our bodies and, um, you know, different practices, whether it's deep breathing, things like that. Um, confidence is about your mindset and really how you see yourself and, and, you know, your mind. And then curiosity is really more about your spirit, you know, that soul, that purpose and, and, you know, tying all the things together. And so, um, I think mind, body, spirit, all three components are necessary and they work cohesively together. Um, but a lot of times uh, the body, because it's it has such a strong pull on all these things, we have to be able to regulate our nervous system so that we're not, when I say that, I mean like, so that we're not always in fight or flight, right? When you're in that fight or flight stressed mode, you're feeling like, you're burning the candle on both ends. You're like going into burnout. Um, you're just stressed out. And when you're stressed out, um, we just cannot access the studies have shown. We can't access that deeper level, that creative part of us to, um, you know, bring in so much more of what we're capable of. And so I usually like to start with the calm piece, really helping people learn how to be really relax their systems, right? And create that space so that they can welcome in the creative parts of them um, and, and bring in that deeper meaning and purpose too. Mm -hmm. What kind of people are coming to seek your help and expertise? So I work with both individuals and organizations and for individuals, um, we work on through either coaching, thought partnership, helping with their mindset techniques, things like that. I also offer integrated medicine consultations, really helping people take a holistic look at their health and well-being, bringing in lifestyle changes, getting to the root cause of things. Um, and then I also offer energy healing sessions for people who are interested in really gaining more spiritual awareness and growth and clearing some of the obstacles there. And um, on, the, on the organization side, so I do consulting, speaking, workshops and trainings, really bringing in a lot of these principles into the workplace, whether it's mindfulness, compassion, self-compassion, EQ, like all of these things that I think is, all these qualities are very important for um, one's success in the workplace and it carries over to their personal lives also. We met at the Global Wellness Summit uh, last November in Miami, and clearly it's a gigantic industry that's, you know, gaining immense traction. And I think it's probably because the algorithms, but whenever I look online, I see something to do with self-help or improvement or moving forward. And I'm just wondering why now there's such a awareness and why people are seeking this. Do you think it is a case of there's just more knowledge out there and people are sharing it? Or do you think there's a genuine interest from people that are, you know, there's a kind of a, a trouble in society and people are, are needing to find a, 
you know, a way to help themselves? I think it's both. I think it's really great that we live in a time where there's so much access to information. Um, on the other hand, I think it can also be overwhelming because to your point, you know, you scroll social media, you're on it for like two minutes and there's like all these videos and articles and everything. <laughs> you're like, Oh my gosh. And so, um, I think that, um, I feel like a lot of times we've, it's become very easy to be a consumer and we're just, there's just so much information out there. Um, I think I always encourage people to be open to different sources, information, things like that, that will open your perspective, right? Um, but I think there also needs to be boundaries and discernment on what works for you. And because different things need different people, different people need different things. It's not one size fits all. Um, but I think that sometimes it can just be very overwhelming when there's so much, so much coming at you. And then what I see sometimes is people are like, okay, I got to do this and this and this and this and this. And then what happens is unfortunately we don't make much progress because we're so distracted, right? It's like, we don't have that focus that is required, that commitment to make meaningful change. So again, tying it back to mindfulness practice and, and how it's so important, just really being present one thing at a time and, and just an ongoing, you know, rinse and repeat practice. You touched on an important point there because for myself, I really know that I'm extremely excited about learning new things. I'm like absorbing, I'm like a sponge. And it's like you were saying, there's this flood of information. But I've really noticed in myself that I can only really make a change when I do the work, when I actually sit down and you're explaining it in your book as well. It's like either journaling or releasing something, writing something down, really thinking about it. And I think that's really important because we can have so much information, but we don't do anything with it. It's like one thing we always laugh about, it's shelf help, not self-help. Like when you have all the, the books, but you don't use it. And I think it's really hard because it's so exciting and interesting to see all of this information, but then you have to actually really sit down and do the work. That's the only thing that shifts the needle. <laughs> I know. What's, uh, yeah. What, uh, what's your advice or what's your What's your little trigger to get people to actually do the work? What's the dangling carrot at the end? <laughs> I know. Well, um, this reminds me, one of my favorite quotes uh, that I heard a while back is um, to know and not do is to not know. To know mm -hmm. and not do is to not know. And I always like to share that because I think to your point, in this day and age, and also with everything going on with the internet, AI, like there's the problem is not like, like getting access to information, right? And we know so much. And a lot of times I think, especially in self-help and wellness, a lot of times we're like, oh yeah, I know what to do. You know, got to drink water. I got to exercise. Like all these things sound basic, right? But the, the thing is, are you actually doing it? Because, and that gets back to that point of um, identity, right? Is it a part of your identity? Thinking about an athlete, they don't think twice about going to the gym and, you know, doing their routines because that's who they are. Whereas somebody who has never gone to the gym, like there's, it's going to be so much harder for them to like be good about their new year's resolution about going to the gym every day and whatever. Right. So I think a big part of it is just recognizing there is a difference between knowing and actually doing and taking action. And, you know, you have to, you have to take action in order to see the results. Um, I think sometimes the, the part that gets people is we think that we're doing something when we're learning and reading And I think that appeases a part of our brain to be like, oh yeah, I am learning. I'm doing something, you know, <laughs> but it's actually more of a passive type of consumption, right? Instead of like 
that's more like what I call passive action as opposed to really taking massive and active action where you're like, okay, I'm actually going to get up from the couch. I'm going to put on my workout clothes and go to the gym. <laughs> right. So, yeah. so I think there's, I, say that, yeah. <laughs> I think yeah, you're absolutely right. And I've been guilty of that before I, you know, I could spend hours watching other people do the activity that I would like to be doing instead of just getting up and doing it, whether it's watching a golf video or something about photography. It's just like, well, just go out and do it. Don't need to watch somebody else doing it. So, um, yeah, it's it's fascinating and it's just something in the psychology. I think, I don't know what it is that we've all become, lazy is the wrong word, but we want this instant fix and this instant gratification. But so often the work just needs to be done, whether that's, you know, physical work to get fit, um, you know, tricky tasks in our job and work life. But ultimately, that's where our satisfa satisfaction and um, fulfillment comes from by really just digging through the stuff that we don't want to do, overcoming that. And um, yeah. And the results. Yeah, the results. So, yeah. Yeah, I think um, something that may be helpful is really recognizing that we as humans are wired for survival, just, you know, evolutionarily speaking. And so what that means is that our brains will want us to be in a place of comfort and safety. And so comfort and safety usually equates continuing the status quo, where you're at currently, right? And when you think about making change about creating a new habit, even though intellectually that makes sense, there's that part of our brain, that lizard brain that's, you know, in the subconscious, that's very much ground rooted in helping us survive. That part gets activated if we're like going too far out of the comfort zone. And what happens is it prevents you from actually wanting to do it. Cause it's like, no, that's too dangerous. Don't go there. You know, just stay on your couch. Just like watch TV. You're okay. You know, you're, yeah. you know, so I yeah. think that's um, something just to be aware of. And I think the more you do this, it is absolutely a muscle. And I think you probably um, have seen this just in, in work wise, how I know for me is um, especially in entrepreneurship, you know, there's so much um, that's unknown and there's a lot that's new and unfamiliar. And when you're really looking at doing something impactful and meaningful, it's going to require work. It's going to require you to actually be uncomfortable. Yeah. And so I think a big part of this is how good are you at being uncomfortable? And I bring in a lot of the, the practices about regulating the nervous system because that helps you with dealing with that discomfort, right? Whether it's rejection, whether it's, you know, whatever it is, like all of these things, um, so that you're able to basically expand your comfort zone in a much easier way so that it doesn't keep you stuck and sabotage yourself. Yeah, we've heard a lot about what you've just explained. And there's other elements and different levels too, where I've been listening to some talks where they're talking about how we often talk about something we're going to do. We're going to lose weight. We're going to join the gym. We're going to start a new dance routine, new yoga class, whatever it might be. And actually we start to um, deplete our motivation because we start to get rewarded just for saying the thing that we're going to do in the future. So before we've even done it, we've already notched down a bit of our motivation and rewarded us might get a tap on the back from a family member or a friend like oh well done you're going to join the gym we haven't even done anything yet and so it's just so funny how the brain works so I've learned not to say anything just get on with it quietly don't say anything you're just doing it and maybe the results show or you tell somebody after a certain amount of time that that's what you've been doing so it's just all these little tricks that we have to do to ourselves yeah and I think it's interesting because depending on the person um different things work better. I know that for some people, um, there's a strong emphasis on external, um, motivation, you know, and, 
But unfortunately, sometimes that can be just very limiting because then you have to kind of always have those markers there versus when you're able to really go within and use a strong intrinsic motivator that can keep you going, right? And I think when you think about what can you really control, really just ourselves. I mean, we may think and want to control other things and other people, <laughs> but uh, what we really have control over is, is ourselves, right? What we actually do. And so um, it's just, I think, a really helpful practice to develop and hone this ability and skill to really um, to be able to motivate yourself to stay connected to your purpose and your why to keep going and, and stay focused. Back to when we were talking about getting out of your comfort zone, because getting out of comfort zone means growth, which we're kind of all interested in. And you were saying about the brain saying out of safety, oh, it's dangerous there, don't do that. And then we were talking about learning to do it anyway. Is that what you were saying? You were saying like you get better at it. I mean, does that mean if I had just do it, even though I'm anxious about it or it stresses me at the time to still do it. And over time that gets easier. And then using the tools you were saying to help with that discomfort. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of the brain, without getting too, too in, in depth and detail, it's so there are different parts to our brains and in terms of basically, um, development. So it started out with like a very small brain and then like over time, like it evolved and became bigger and bigger. And so the part I'm talking about that survival base is very much like the oldest part of the brain. And so, um, now all parts of the brain communicate with each other. Right. But then, um, for some things, essentially one can override the other. And so it's interesting because, um, what we see, the studies, I mean, um, a lot of times with mindfulness practice, meditation, the parts of the brain that are more survival-based actually will um, get less activated over time. And so to how we talked about neuroplasticity and how the brain can evolve and change. So these practices and lifestyles do make an impact on our physiology and our bodies. And so that's why it does matter. You know, it's not just a one-time thing. Um, so I do, I think it's um, taking a very holistic approach. It's not just like forcing your way through, right? Because a lot of times um, if you're not ready and, you know, what can happen is you actually get more triggered and more stressed out and that's not good either, right? Because then you're going to be kind of, on the other end of the spectrum and in constant fight or flight. So I think the key is really bringing in multiple um, just practices. So being intentional about what you're trying to accomplish um, and then also bringing in ways to continue regulating your nervous system and that survival piece of your brain. Um, and that with, with all of these things together, you'll slowly be able to um, really grow your comfort zone and then be able, it gets easier to be able to do new things. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention was also, I highly recommend doing this kind of practice just all the time. You know, the more you're able to practice this, the easier, right? Think about taking breaths, intentional breaths normally every day. I like to say, just set an alarm, three alarms a day. And then when your alarm goes off, take four box breaths, whatever it is, um, so that when something comes up, when it's a fire that comes, you know, a crisis, you're already having that more regulated, calm um, state so that it's not as hard to remember, oh, I can take a breath first before, you know, managing, dealing with whatever is going on. Yeah, I think that's a really nice way you were explaining it. And I can definitely relate to it that I feel like with meditation over time, I've noticed like you were expressing in certain situations, I react differently than I would have done before, or certain things don't bother me as much. And I think that's the nice thing to understand that it's something, a result over that you get over time. It's not just in the moment you feel good and feel calm and, it's, and you do it because you should do it because meditation is a... Um, 
big word now these days. <laughs> it's just that will benefit over time. And I think that's um, th that surprised me and that made me keep going because it wasn't just uh, that's something that was more of a resort than just feeling good in the moment. And I was thinking like, wow, that situation I would have completely handled differently or this didn't even cross my mind and it would have bothered me before. And I think that's really what keeps me going. Uh, things like you're saying, those long-term effects. Yeah. And I think it's so great that you have been able to see that benefit, right? So that it keeps motivating you. And I think sometimes it can be tricky because, um, you know, if you don't see tangible benefit, you might give up, right? You know, maybe it's just another month of meditation and then you get to reap all these benefits, but then maybe for that person, they're like not able to see it and they just give up and they're like, no, meditation does not work for me. <laughs> you know? So mm -hmm. um, I think there's just, and that's why I think it's a lot of times subtle, it's little shifts and changes, um, but the more we're able to be present and pay attention, for example, you know, where do you hold stress in your body? A lot of time for me, I hold it in my neck and shoulders. And I like to always scan my body, you know, morning and evening. It's like, hey, how am I feeling? Is there tension? Um, just these little, um, I guess, um, ways to just check in with yourself, right? To see, to gauge, and, and also to help you with um, just monitoring progress too. I think you're right. Some of these things do take time and it's not sort of you go and meditate once and suddenly your life changes. I think it can be eye-opening to begin with, but I know for me, and it's not like I'm sort of religiously meditating every day, but taking those mindful breaths is something I probably do every day. And it really has made a difference because like you said, when a situation arises that requires a moment of calm or not to overreact by, by taking that uh, making that breathing technique, it really does completely change your whole perspective of what's about to happen or how you deal with that situation. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's a practice. And I think a lot of times um, we're so focused on the result that we forget about the process. But I think it's so helpful when we're able to actually appreciate and fall in love with this process. Right. Instead of just being so focused on that one result, because um, just the byproduct of, of this process, you're going to get your result. You're going to become a different person. Um, but that's I think, you know, because that's the day in day in and day out, the grind of like practicing and doing those breaths and doing, you know, journaling for five minutes, whatever it is when you don't want to. Um, but when you're able to actually really appreciate this process, it does make it easier for sure. Very cool. Um, just wanted to sort of switch gears a little bit and bring it a little bit into our world around architecture and design. You've worked in a lot of medical facilities and they typically don't, they're not a place of sort of joy that you're rushing to go to, to kind of enjoy the architectural design. Yet it's a place where we often need that um, say connection to nature or a place that's going to make us feel comfortable and not intimidated. Have you, is that typical of the sort of hospitals or surgeries that you've worked in? And have you come across anything that's been kind of more inspirational to help in the healing process? Yeah, I love this question because I really, I'm hopeful that the future of healthcare will really incorporate more of these elements in. Um, I think for me, um, I've seen all kinds of facilities, <laughs> hospitals, clinics, um, throughout training, you know, been in county hospitals, private, public community, like all kinds, different countries. Um, I, I think there's for sure an impact on, um, you know, that your environment plays a role in how you feel and how you heal. And I think that, um, it's something I hope we can really bring more attention to. Um, for example, even just like the colors, right, of the wall, the amount of space you have. Um, and then I think the what's more so, I think when they're more focused on wellness, you know, whether it's integrative wellness clinics, centers, they do bring in those aspects. They pay attention to 
the sound, right? You know, just the environment, the lighting, all of these things. Um, and I think absolutely um, thinking about a patient receiving a diagnosis, you know, like you want to be some, it can be a very traumatic experience. And to be able to have ways to just make that a little bit easier, I think is so important, right? I think people think about, um, I think with different physicians, different personalities, different bedside manner, um, that can impact the patient's experience also, right? They may receive the same diagnosis, but depending on how they receive it, how it's shared, um, the whole interaction, it, it can determine a lot based on, you know, their whole progression. And so I think it is really, really important to talk and acknowledge this. And I really hope that um, we can bring more of these into the, the healthcare and wellness space, really, to um, facilitate healing for patients. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely in the wellness world, it's it's much easier to integrate in sort of mainstream healthcare. I think it's more of a challenge. And it's kind of a double-edged sword because in hospitality, which is predominantly what we focus on, there's still a, a requirement to make things kind of bulletproof. So in a hotel, you're still trying to make it beautiful and appealing and aspirational to a degree, but you've got to make sure it stands up to the rigors of abuse. Hospitals the same. It's got to have certain functionality where it's got to be clinical. You know, it's got to, again, stand up to abuse. It's got to be easily cleanable, washable. So it's how do you, you know, take those requirements and then soften it so that it's appealing to the guest and the workers. We shouldn't leave out the healthcare professionals out of the, in the environment that we're trying to create. But there must be certain easy things that we can, you know, when, like you said, you know, colors, uh, natural lighting, getting the air quality correct. Um, so there's there's lots of things to work on. I was just uh, reading a book and it was talking about the sanitariums that they designed in Europe in the early 20th century, which were where they used to treat people with tuberculosis before they had the advent of, um, what am I trying to say? Um, antibiotics and they were places that the only way to treat it was a lot of bed rest but in environments where they had amazing natural light access to sunshine and um, you know fresh clean sort of mountain air and what happened was as soon as antibodies came along they weren't needed anymore and the hospitals or the healthcare facilities actually prioritized the new equipment or the new technology rather than the patient so it's kind of this weird oxymoron that we're going through where you know the the expensive piece of surgical equipment had more priority than the patient that it was trying to help so it's just a funny thing how technology helps us but can hurt us at the same same time. Yeah, I, I think it's a fine balance. Um, I think that, you know, we always want to be mindful if we're being too extreme, one or the other. Uh, but I think that there's it's that there's benefit to to both. And and I think it's about really integrating different pieces. Um, I do think that when a patient is able to have, you know, exposure to great environment, to natural light, to being spending time out in nature. Like I absolutely believe that's healing to their spirit and to their body. Um, but also incorporating whatever medical treatments that they need, right. In a way that's supportive, um, to, to just help overall. One thing that came to my mind a little bit on the kind of architectural design wellness field is that we see a lot of uh, urban wellness hubs opening social wellness clubs um, what's your thought around that do you feel like that that is something that actually helps people on a day-to-day basis integrating wellness do you think those work I don't know how familiar you are with those but we keep seeing a lot of these concepts appearing which seem to make a lot of sense instead of going to the bar and drinking alcohol, not saying that you shouldn't do that as bad. You got to have fun too, but it's more making self-care as part of a social, um, protocol than just for yourself. Do you have any experience or anything that helped with for your 
clients that you see using something like that, facilities like that? Yeah, I think that it's definitely a very promising um, environment for people. Um, I think it also depends on the actual individual, right? Depending on if they're more introverted, extroverted, you know, what works for them. Um, I think that a lot of times um, we don't necessarily talk about the importance of community in our overall well-being, but it's a double-edged sword, right? It's like, well, what kind of community, right? It's if you're trying to quit drinking and then all of your friends like to go out every day, that's going to be hard and it's going to, you know, not necessarily be supportive. And so I think it's really, um, I think it can absolutely be very helpful. Um, but I, I like to just talk about balance and moderation. And I think a big part of it is also being honest with yourself in terms of what works for you. And that yeah. is not necessarily an easy question to answer sometimes, right? Because you may have done things this way for decades. And all of a sudden you're like, well, this isn't going to work for me anymore. And to kind of reconcile that piece again. And so um, I think there's definitely promise and, and benefit, but it's also, it's just, you know, you still want to be able to discern and to be present and mindful to see like, hey, just because this is a new, hip, cool place, like, is that something that, works for me, you know, if I'm like totally introverted and I just stresses me out to be around people or pets or whatever, even though, you know, a lot of people really like pets and animals, like that's not going to work. <laughs> so I think, yeah. you know, it's really important to really still honor who you are at the core. Yeah. I think that's a, a good valid point. So what's next for you? What's exciting you? What are you channeling in your energy into going forward? Yeah, well, I think a lot of exciting things. Um, I'm definitely I'm glad that we connected at the Global Wellness Summit. And um, I think for me, with my background, just really interested in partnering with hospitality and really bridging the gap between medicine and wellness and really really bringing more awareness and education to help people be more empowered and to advocate for their own well-being. So, yeah. I love that mission. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's the perfect segue to uh, conclude our nice little chat. Thank you so much. Yeah, well, thank you, Cindy. Happy to be here. <laughs>